Welcome to Opening Dharma Access, a podcast where we hear stories from BIPOC teachers about their Dharma experiences and practice, and how these inform the ways they are sharing the Dharma today. I am Dalila Bothwell, your host for this episode, and joining me today is Christina Moon. As a strategist, author, and Josen G. Priest, Christina works with individuals and organizations to develop the sensitivity and spiritual strength needed to lead in today's challenging world. Christina publishes a Substack newsletter called Sea Moon, and her written work has appeared in Tricycle, Lion's Roar, and Buddha Dharma magazines. She also has a memoir coming out in June 2024 with Shambhala Publications. You can find her online on her website, www.christinamoon.com. That's Christina, C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, Moon. Her substack is cmoon.substack.com, and her Instagram is at moon.c.moon. Welcome, Christina. Thanks, Dalila. We usually begin our conversations with the first question, how do you identify racially, ethnically, and any other categories of social location that are important to you right now? Thanks. First of all, I'm just really happy to be here with you. (laughs) Thank you for reaching out to me. I'm Korean American and uh, I do have some Japanese and Chinese ancestry a couple generations back. And I live right now in Kalihi Valley on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. That covers a lot. (laughs) That covers everything for me right now. Uh And how did you end up in Oahu? About... Six years ago, I um, was planning some travel and decided uh, I wanted to come to Hawaii. I had come here for a wedding and then for vacation. And then I was going to come just with a friend. And the minute, almost like to the minute that I finally pinned him down on Facebook Messenger and he said, okay, we'll meet in Hawaii in January. Right after that, I saw another Facebook Messenger window pop up, and it was an old, old friend, someone that I'd known since I was actually 19 years old. And he was saying, Aloha, it's been a really long time. I don't know if you remember, I told you about this Zen temple that I started training at 15 years ago, but they just asked me to move in and help take over the place. I remember you used to do a lot of Buddhist meditation. So if you're ever out in Hawaii, you should come by and say hi. And I, I just couldn't believe the timing. It was literally seconds after I just decided I was going to go to Hawaii from California, where I was living uh-huh. at the time. And uh-huh. it sort of felt like, well, I have to go check this place out. I had honestly no interest in Zen, had not ever really thought about coming to this place before, but the timing alone made it kind of obvious to me that it kind of had to happen. And then I looked at the website, which had recently been redesigned. I learned about the lineage and the way that the training is done here. And I just had this feeling of, oh my gosh, I think this is like everything I've ever been looking for, even though I didn't even know I was looking for a martial arts Zen dojo in Hawaii. I came out first. I was supposed to be here for three weeks and that was five and a half years ago. I'm still here. (laughs) But it's interesting because if I'm correct, and you can uh, correct my memory, we met in New York Insight Meditation, the Insight Tradition. That's right. And 
Yeah. And was it at a BIPOC uh, Sangha, I think, that we met originally? I think so. Or maybe think one. So. Uh-huh. Or just through an event. I remember, I think, meeting you a couple of times at New York Insight. And that would have been, I think, when uh, my friend Sebene was the executive director, yeah. which was when I started going a lot more. And I remember yeah. the two of you being kind of a dynamic duo behind the scenes. Well, thank you. Yes. Seven A and I worked there for quite a few years together. And so you went from the insight tradition and then which you as you were saying, you had no indication or just like even a leaning towards being in the Zen tradition. So I'm curious, can you articulate now in retrospect anything that kind of like felt like you belonged there? Most of all the pull I can probably only describe as karmic because mm. it was inexplicable. I hadn't, again, yeah, I just never really been interested in Zen. I had a, I had some hangups and some concerns sort of from my upbringing. So Korea and Japan have had a very difficult and challenging history, especially with the colonization and the war. I, I was never super interested in it, in being in a very Japanese environment. Um, I had some stereotypes and assumptions about Japanese culture being very patriarchal. And so any Zen community I would go to would be very patriarchal and formal. And I had had just like a little bit of a little bit of exposure to Soto Zen and had just really felt that it wasn't for me. I didn't know that there were several different schools of Zen. When I looked at the website, though, I mean, first of all, here it, it, it was this place that was being recommended by a friend, someone that I trusted. And then when I looked at the website, it just, Chosenji stood out to me as so different from anywhere else I'd ever been, in large part because it was in Hawaii and was so informed, not just by Japanese culture, but by Native Hawaiian culture and spirituality and individuals who had been leaders and part of the community and who taught here. It was also the incorporation of the martial arts that's a big factor. It brings a very different energy and feeling to the training, to the experience, and to the place, and to how one approaches the Dharma. And so that, mm. it, it was just very, it was kind of brash and kind of radical and in your face. And I really liked that. And that appeals to me in my very like spicy kimchi Korean sensibilities <laughs> being like just direct <laughs> and intense. And so, um, uh -huh. and I uh -huh. had, I had trained in some martial arts when I was younger and it was actually after I started meditating seriously in the Goenka Vipassana and then insight traditions, mm -hmm. I, I had the sense that martial arts didn't match with Buddhism and that I shouldn't mm. do martial arts anymore. I was spending all this time trying to be really like calm and, have a placid demeanor and be gentle and compassionate. And then martial arts was about like fighting people. And I felt, you know, the energy was too intense. And so I stopped and I did yoga for like 10 years. And it was only when I came to Chosenji that I started doing any sort of martial arts again. Wow. That's interesting. These, the conditioning and like the way each lineage, especially in the West kind of teaches us about the body. Right. And as you said, demeanor and what the practice, air, air, I'm using air quotes here, kind of looks like if we're embodying it, right? And, he, you know, sometimes the, the perception for some folks, and we're given this perception very clearly, right? Like, 
this is what it looks like to be mindful or to be calm and to be embodied in the practice. And then, and it's just, I think about how fortunate it is to have that exposure to other ways of being, right? Hopefully, I mean, in your case, and in my case, and being exposed to you, right? Like, that's interesting. Before we go into the next question, I'm curious as to how or in what ways the indigenous Hawaiian culture informs the Sangha and the community and the practice there? I think, first of all, because we are in Hawaii on the Aina, there's, it's impossible pretty much for there not to be a Hawaiian influence, particularly when you're in a local community, less transplants who are maybe more recent and people who've, you know, been here for a couple of generations. Um, a lot of the folks who came to Hawaii who were not Native Hawaiian in like the 18th and 19th century were Asian workers who went to go work on uh, plantations here. And mm-hmm. a lot of these folks from China, Korea, Japan, the Philippines, they encountered in Hawaii this cultural foundation that allowed them to really hold on to their culture and ancestry and where they came from. And there, mm. it, there's sort of a trope in, in some of these communities, too, that the connection sometimes felt even stronger. Like people used to joke, there's a, a wonderful movie called The Picture Bride about a young Japanese woman who comes over as a picture bride for a worker on the plantation. And it's a trope that comes up several times in the movie about how, you know, back in Japan, like I didn't, people never experienced like ghosts or felt like, you know, spirits were around, but in Hawaii, it happened all the time. And that was sort of one of the running themes in the film was that there was um, a way in which like we were in a liminal, you know, people were in a liminal space here in Hawaii where the spiritual world and the past and the future and the material world, the borders between them were all a little bit fuzzier. That is a reflection or an echo, I think, of how Native Hawaiian people and spirituality really, you know, consider their ancestors to be present here in the plants and in the animals. And so it's not this thing that's so much like behind you in the past and far away. It's very present. Mm -hmm. And then cultural practice was just, I mean, Hawaiian culture was just exceptional, especially at that time, um, in terms of its vibrancy, its formality, the level of refinement and sophistication. And then when things like the written language were introduced, I mean, the level of literacy is like almost 100% literacy almost overnight in Hawaii and so many mm. newspapers and journals being published. That was just a really fertile ground and a supportive ground for these different people's to be able to hold on to their wisdom and their technologies and their ancestries when they came over here. There is a way that even if it's not overtly Hawaiian, when you encounter something that we would just call it local in Hawaii, there it, it is local. It exists because of the context of being in Hawaii and Hawaiian culture. If you were to come to Chosenji, the buildings look very Japanese, but then we have this beautiful green fern wall and some native plants that really give you, and we're back in the, in the mountains and in the forest. And so it really gives you this feeling of like, it is lush and it is Hawaii. You know, we have this hill that's very prominent at the front of the temple and it's natural. It was always here. 
one of our two founders, Tonai Roshi, who was Japanese American, born and raised in Honolulu. He put this sort of like stone monolith up at the top with a calligraphy, an engraving of a calligraphy of an Enso, a circle at the top of the hill, because he felt that was where you could most feel what the Japanese would call kozen no ki, the rhythm or the energy of the universe. Native Hawaiian spiritual leader Pilahi Paki, whose definition of the aloha spirit is actually enshrined in state law, she came and she said the hill was what was called a manava, a sacred energy mountain. And there had been four, There, it had been known that there were four throughout the Hawaiian islands and one was lost. And then she felt very strongly that either it had been hidden here or opened up here at this hill at Chosenji. Mm-hmm. Even even the geographic formations is this feeling of like, oh, it's very, it has a Japanese significance and it has a Hawaiian significance. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it's sort of semantics and language. They're both pointing at the same universal principle, but right. the context and the containers. Yeah, there's a lot about the place that is Hawaiian, in addition just to the fact that we have had Hawaiian priests, Native Hawaiian students and teachers ever since the, the founding of Chosenji in 1972. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for sharing that. So when you said they were pointing to the same universal principle, I kind of wanted to name, ask you what that was, but part of me also wants to leave it as a mystery. And also I think of it as Aloha spirit, right? It's like that welcoming nature of Hawaii and yeah, the, the aloha of it. And so I'm not going to ask to name the spirit or am I going to say it's aloha or not, but that's what's arising for me. So I want to leave that there. Thanks so for sharing that, Christina. Mm-hmm. I'll add just one thing because you're totally you're totally on it, which is um, it, it is these things that can't quite be named and being, uncomfort- being comfortable with the fact that you can't name it and put it in a mm-hmm. box and define it in Chinese and, and Japanese and Korean sort of uh, worldview and philosophy, we would call that the Tao. And right. once you define the Tao and think you know it or try to hold it in your hand, it's no longer the Tao. Right. And the aloha is the same thing. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, Tanoi Rushi used to even say that Native Hawaiians, his Native Hawaiian students had a better, were more adept, um, not just Native Hawaiian, but people from Hawaii were more adept, uh, had a leg up in approaching Zen because of this, um, concept of dakain mm. in Hawaiian in Hawaiian language and Hawaiian pidgin, which is uh, just a placeholder word that sort of just points to something without defining it. Maybe it cheapens it a little bit to say it's sort of like whatchamacallit or, or who's it was it? <laughs> Stuff, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you could uh-huh. be, you know, it can refer to a person, it can refer mm-hmm. to a thing, to a feeling, to an mm-hmm. activity, but you just say, well, yeah, dakain, what's up with dakain today? You know? And people just sort of, you know, you understand it contextually and then just through feeling you're connecting mm-hmm. with the meaning in a different way. Yeah. So yeah, if you can, business if you, of things. yeah, if you can get by, if you can get on with that, then you have a much better chance at Zen. <laughs> it was essentially the <laughs> right, lesson right. I took away. Right. Right. That's and it's so once again, against our conditioning of like, of, of white supremacist conditioning, really, of colonized, colonized, colonized conditioning of like, we have to label it. We have to know what it is in order to, right? Instead of just like, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thank that you. West, that Aristotelian logic 
if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, then A must be greater than C or whatever. It's like, you know, like everything needs to have a mathematical equation to explain it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. So the second question uh, is a two-parter. The first part is what would have been helpful to you as a BIPOC Dharma practitioner? I was thinking about this because in many ways, I don't have any regrets about my path because I got, it got me to where I am. And I'm very, I feel really incredibly fortunate and blessed to have arrived here and to be able to be training and living at Chosen G. It's just the most, it's hard training, but it's also like so luxurious. I mean, this beautiful place with wonderful people with this lineage and this training method. And it's just, it's all great. So I have no regrets. Mm. And (laughs) at the same time, the one thing I did think about in how to respond to this question was that it would have been great to have a more accurate or greater understanding of where exactly it was that I wa- that I had landed in the greater sort of American mm. Buddhist landscape. Entering Buddhism, you know, my very first exposure was through a Soto Zen practitioner. And then I did some meditation for like a weekend with a Korean Taoist monk. But then really it was in the insight tradition, going to Tara Brock's Dharma talks and sittings out in Bethesda, Maryland. And then it was through uh, Goenka Vipassana and then back into the insight world. And I think it would have benefited me back then if I could have registered and processed it. And I'm not sure that I could have, Mm -hmm. but it would have benefited me back then to understand the very slim chances of how I had ended up where I did. There are so few Buddhists in America, number one. And then if you look at it, just demographically speaking, Insight Buddhism is such a small sector of American Buddhism. The majority Mm -hmm. of American Buddhists are Asian American in the Thai and Vietnamese and Korean and Lao and Japanese temples. And I ended up in in Insight Buddhism, this little Mm -hmm. place. But when you're inside Insight, it doesn't feel like that little place. Because it's all the Insight the insight teachers are speaking at wisdom 2.0 and they're on the covers of the magazines. And, you know, I, so I kind of thought it was the whole world. Yeah. Um, And then there was, I did do a lot of work with uh, Burmese communities. And so I would go to the Burmese Vipassana Theravada temples once in a while. And I would really have liked if um, it didn't feel like I was stepping into such disparate worlds when I was either in an Mm. insight place or in a Burmese temple, because they were drawing from the same lineage, the same teachers, but Mm -hmm. culturally they were just utterly worlds apart. And if there had been some sort of relationship there, I would have enjoyed that. If nothing less, because I love Burmese food and I would have loved to follow up some of those Dharma talks and those things, you know, with some like right. real food, real food and customs and clothes and language from, you know, we're, we're talking about these Burmese teachers all day, like Mahasi Sayadaw. It would have been great to have a little bit more of the flavor and the cultural context of where these teachings and these ideas and these traditions actually came from. 
Um, in Zen, we would call them maybe forms where you know, mm. in the sense of like something is formal, like there is a certain expectation of what is courtesy, courteous behavior, appropriate behavior. Um, and then it's also like religious forms. And I think teachers, especially who had spent time in Southeast Asia, they brought some of that stuff in ch- chanting and Pali, holding your hands together, bowing. But then there were certain things that a lot of people might call ritual that I think are just religious and spiritual and cultural forms that also could have um, helped round out a bit of my early education as a Buddhist so that it was, it was less conceptual and intellectual. Mm. And so I could have experienced it in my body a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the bridges can, I think of bridges and foundations, like especially the bridge of food, right? Like, because when you were speaking, I was thinking of kind of American or Western insight as feeling like it's an island when it's really not, right? It's like connected to all these other cultures and heritages. And it has a particular foundation. What you described feels like this kind of uh, Western, quote unquote, Western kind of mindset of like, oh, here's this thing that we found. Right. Like, but that it's also comes from and is part of so many great cultures. And how can we extend that bridge as part of it? Mm-hmm. And food being a great, always being a great connector. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would have loved just more okay. of a sense Thanks. of relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Relationship. I think, and you know, as I, for myself, and when I speak to other BIPOC Dharma practitioners who, who are convert Buddhists or did not grow up in Buddhist cultures or families of origin, that that relational aspect feels wanting, right? In the Dharma and in mindfulness, like where's the relationship part? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Thank from you. a cultural standpoint, it, that's not easy. You know, there's a foreignness, there's an otherness. It's hard to be other. And when you're stepping into someone else's culture, that you you really feel it. And mm-hmm. there are, it, it naturally grates, like rubs up against our sense of ourself and our ego. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. to, you know, especially if something, the first time you do it, the first couple of times, you're not going to be good at it. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes it's even like hard to take your <laughs> shoes off the right way to go inside <laughs> or in a way that like feels appropriate. Uh-huh. Does it stand out like a sore thumb? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so to just humble yeah to humble myself going into a different culture and just to say, okay, I'm really going to try to do everything the way everyone else does it like that, that Mm -hmm, alone, mm -hmm. there's something really sometimes existentially kind of threatening about that, but that is at its core. Also what we're doing in Buddhism is we're trying to get at like, who are you? Right. Right. Yeah. It kind of jostles that sense of belonging. You might think you belong and then you go into a new place. You're like, oh, what's my place here? Right. And it feels like, as you said, an exercise in humility to be like, oh, I, let me really, really practice. Don't know mind. And be like, okay, let me see what you're doing. And you know, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then oh. once you can transcend that more superficial feeling of belonging or not belonging, because we eat the same food or we talk the same way, Mm-hmm. Then, then you get to a much deeper sense of, oh, I belong everywhere. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's quite another bridge. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Thank you. So the second part of that this question is, are there suggestions you have for, and we've kind of been talking to, about this, is are there suggestions you have for how our communities could be more supportive of BIPOC practitioners and teachers now? And it's interesting. It's, it, the question is now, you know, we live in such a different world in this j- part of the pandemic and before the pandemic started. So I'm not quite sure if the, if the response would be different, but yeah. How, and any, any suggestions for how we could be more supportive of BIPOC practitioners and teachers? I, I sit in kind of a unique spot again, by virtue of the demographics of Hawaii and Chosenji. Chosenji is um, really almost entirely people of color. And that's just a reflection of the demographics of Hawaii, mostly Asian, but really um, very diverse. I bring that up to say my experience, especially in more of a position of leadership as a priest and someone who's sort of just taken on, made a commitment to make sure this place survives and thrives from an administrative operational standpoint, um, as well as the training. You know, my perspective is like pretty focused on Asian American Buddhists. Mm-hmm. And part of that is um, driven by the need for repair and to reverse a history of erasure of Asian Americans and Asian people and Asian culture in Western Buddhism um, as it's depicted and understood in sort of like mainstream media and in certain circles. I tend to, to focus there, but the ramifications or the reverberations of doing that, I think would benefit everybody, all practitioners and practitioners of color. And part of the reason for that is because if we really acknowledge that 70% of American Buddhists are Asian or of Asian descent, and that the way that Buddhism is experienced and embodied in those predominantly Asian communities is so different from how it's represented in Mindful Magazine, for example, Mm -hmm. then I think we just put ourselves in a, like we understand sort of where we are in in the landscape and in society a lot better. And then it allows us to sort of more honestly interface with, you know, what our place in history is also, and in the larger dynamics of American Buddhism, colonization, appropriation, and erasure. I say start there. And then just my experience with the, you know, having being in a Zen temple where culture, not just through the presence of people who are actively connected to their ancestry and cultural ancestry, but also the fact that we train in specific martial and fine arts, so cultural, what are otherwise thought of as cultural activities, but are here understood as they're actually disciplines that were developed as what we would call a way, which Mm. is basically maybe a smaller version of the Tao, but it's that's why, for example, kendo isn't just swordsmanship or fencing. It is the way. Do means the way. So the way of the sword, because through training in kendo, one can realize their true self. One can realize some degree of enlightenment when approached and it's trained in in the right way as a Zen discipline. You know, being in touch with these cultural vehicles and contexts that not only allowed Buddhism to survive and thrive, but actually evolved 
alongside and as vehicles of the Dharma for people to embody mm-hmm. and experience it in direct ways. That tends to be more my focus and where I'm at. Mm-hmm. But in doing so, I really feel that it benefits everybody. And in particular, BIPOC practitioners and students who need as much as anybody else an authentic Dharma, but who in the process of mm-hmm. encountering a whole and authentic lineage, you know, there's a lot of healing that can come through mm-hmm. that, even if it's not your own. So I've, I've had folks, for example, mm-hmm. say to me that training in Zen, training at Chosenji, because it's an intact lineage that really we can trace all the way back teacher student to the historical Buddha. Because of that and the container and just the wholeness of the feeling of the training, mm-hmm. it allowed them as a person of indigenous ancestry, almost to imagine, reimagine their own history and culture with all of like mm. what it would look like if the holes had been filled in or if the holes weren't there, the holes being there as a product of colonization. Mm-hmm. But it was like, you kind of have to see it. Like, what does it mean for it, for there to be a whole and intact lineage? Like I came to this podcast, you can't see it in the recording, but I'm like wearing our training clothes, mm-hmm. which date back to the fifth century. Like people have been wearing these clothes to do spiritual training and self-development since the fifth for 1500, 1700 years. Mm -hmm. And in seeing that she was like, yeah, I could imagine now what it might look like if my people's history had been intact. And it Mm. helps me fill in some of the holes too, where certain things that didn't fit into like neat categories and containers. For example, she had one teacher who would always tell her like, stop thinking don't think. And just that alone, she was like, I don't know how to do that. But then she did Zazen, seated meditation, and then she trained in some arts. And then she's like, oh, now I know what he was talking about. And it wasn't her culture that she came from, but it was the experience of this is a cultural container in which that don't think, don't do things through thinking was still alive. And I experience Mm. it. I know the taste of it and I could apply it now to mm-hmm. my own ancestry and lineage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to see that modeled for us. Yeah, I can see, I, I can imagine how healing that can be. There's some of that that happens, and this didn't start in a way in Hawaii. The verbal history that I, that's that been shared with me was that really it was um, the folks, the Maori from Aotearoa, who in the 70s made contact with, you know, folks in Hawaii, Polynesian folks in Hawaii, yeah. and said, like, we did it. We held on to our culture. You can do it too. That was not, I think, the whole genesis or catalyst for the Native Hawaiian Renaissance in the 1970s. But from what's been conveyed to me, it was a really big part of it, being able to see, oh, we did it. You can too. And I think now... Hawaii plays that role for a lot of other people. And there have been, I know, indigenous communities and particularly Native American communities that have connected with folks from Hawaii to and sort of received that same message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To know that all parts of our culture and ourselves belong as part of the way, right? The way of like how we practice, which is once again, not what we're told, right? And so to have that it feels like a, a patching of some sort, attending to a wound to know that, yeah, drumming belongs, right? Dancing belongs, 
martial arts belong, it all belongs as part of how we embody the Dharma and practice the Dharma. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm enjoying this conversation, Christina. Thank you. Me too. So the last question is, where is the edge of your teaching now as a BIPOC teacher generally and with respect to BIPOC students in particular? I struggled a little bit with this question because I feel like it describes a different archetype of of a Buddhist person <laughs> in a leadership position. I'm an ordained priest, uh-huh. but I don't teach. So being a priest is different from being a, a Roshi or a Zen master mm. that, or, you know, Roshi literally means old teacher. When you're a Roshi, that means you've received Inca, um, which is, translates in different ways. But to receive Inca is basically uh, your teacher who comes from a lineage and who's been authorized to uphold the lineage is now saying you're authorized and I see you as capable of upholding our lineage and pushing it into the future. Being a Roshi then means that you can have students who are formally yours. And in the Rinzai Zen tradition, it means that you can have students with whom you do Sanzen koan training. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a very formal, like once, you know, you're doing Sanzen with a teacher, like that is the, the formal relationship of what it means to have a teacher, to be a student of a particular teacher. So I'm not a teacher, <laughs> but I'm a Zen priest. <laughs> The criteria for being a priest at Chozenji is simply that you have made a commitment to the training to uphold it and to make it available to other people. And that Hmm. really more than anything, your training is now lifelong. At the same time, though, I do occasionally give Dharma talks and I do interviews and I do a lot of writing. And so in that way, I am kind of teaching. So there's, there's sort of like two, two ways. I want to answer this question given that context. And the first is that the real edge, one could say the real edge of how I'm teaching as an Asian American Buddhist and for other Buddhists of color is just by training my butt off, training Mm -hmm. as hard as I can to be as free to transcend my self-imposed limitations, to get rid of my baggage and my trauma and my habits. So that kind of in that old world sense, it's like you don't teach by saying anything, but you teach just through your actions and who you are and through your presence. Someone told me a really good Catholic quote recently, which was preach always and occasionally use words. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's that feeling of like, through my actions, am I demonstrating and am I giving people the feeling that they should Mm -hmm. be feeling in Zen? They should get from Mm -hmm. Zen. Mm -hmm. So that's really, that's really, really the edge of my teaching in that sense, because there's so much training to do and so much (laughs) refinement I have yet to do. But in terms of like when I'm writing and speaking, I'm mostly trying to convey the diversity of the ways that Buddhism can be understood and practiced. And in particular, the Chosenji approach is like running straight up the mountain. It's very vigorous. It's has a lot of vitality. It's brash. It's very direct. 
maybe in the duality of like yin and yang, it's like double yang. <laughs> we do a lot of yelling and swinging swords and moving rocks and stuff like that and cutting down trees. And personally, I felt a lot in my sort of earlier Buddhist years, like that kind of vigor and enthusiasm, like wasn't, I felt like I was told a lot of the time it wasn't always a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I endeavored to become like a lot smaller and quieter than was sort of true to myself mm-hmm. because, you know, I think that's one aspect of the colonization and whitewashing of American Buddhism is there's a cert- there are certain tropes of and, and stereotypes about what it means to be Buddhist. And mm-hmm. there is really laden with some of these like racist stereotypes of what it is to be Asian, like being demure and quiet and, Mm. you know, obsequious all the time. And in, you know, at Chosenji, it's very different. And so I want to give that feeling of like, what is it like to be a Zen samurai? That's a very different feeling. And it's complex and it's nuanced. It's not just out there swinging a sword. It's also serving a cup of tea in a way that Mm. fills the room with a sense of welcome and makes people feel totally at ease. And then it's the same mechanism that you've cultivated within yourself and capacity to create that feeling that, I mean, you could take it into kendo too and have your presence completely take over an encounter with an opponent who's also holding a sword on the other end of the spectrum in terms of feeling, but it's still feeling. So I'm trying to communicate a lot to people simply that this exists and that there's a way to approach Buddhism that feels and maybe in some ways like it fits with, for me, how I see the urgency of our times. You know, we talk about what we do here as training and training has a different, it's all semantics, but it has a different vibe and feeling than practice. Like we're training and it's for something. And it's for Mm. the hardest moment in our lives. And it's for those points where we need to do the really difficult things. And that just feels like it fits sort of with where we're at. And so I, I, I really just try to share that with people. This too Mm. is a way to approach Buddhism and a way to approach life full steam ahead. And there's nothing about it that's wrong or less Buddhist or Less Buddhist because it's different Mm. or foreign. There's Mm -hmm. a way in which a lot of what we do, it feels ancient and it feels foreign to Americans. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's okay. That, that means really authentic and that's how it feels. Mm. I think in particular, I see my own audience too, as a lot of Asian Americans out there. There's that Pew research on religious disaffiliation that came out a number of years ago. Mm. And Mm -hmm. it basically said that uh, out of all the different demographics, Asian American Buddhists were disaffiliating from the traditions, the religious traditions they had grown up in. So from Buddhism at a higher Mm. rate than any other demographic, higher than Christians even. And I think it's nuanced and complicated as to why that happens. Many of the people who were interviewed in that research cited that, you know, as second and sometimes third generation Asian Americans, they no longer spoke the same language. 
that the services or the you know temple activities were conducted in, or their their like first world problems as established you know after being established here like we're kind of infantilized by the monks who were like mm. your parents were boat people and refugees like what are you <laughs> complaining to me for about feeling there's right, a bamboo right. ceiling at work you know you have a job right right <laughs> and but i think but i know that there's also an aspect particularly from you know chen zing han's research with Asian American mm. Buddhist community and young people of feeling like being Buddhist made you other. And like, yeah. you didn't want to do that when you were young. I, I wanted to be baptized when I was nine and 10 yeah. years old mm -hmm. because everybody else had been. And so it felt, you know, like, why aren't I doing that? why do we do these weird Korean Buddhist things when I go to visit my grandparents? Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wanted to be like everyone else. And so I think that's a part of it too, the feeling of being foreign and exotic and other if you're mm -hmm. Buddhist. And we know that from American history. Japanese Americans who were Buddhist versus Christian were more likely to be persecuted, arrested, and sent to concentration camps exactly. because their Buddhist affiliation made them more of a threat that they mm -hmm. were the emperor worshipers who were going to betray the United States. It, it's very important to me in particular for Asian Americans who've grown up with such a sense of having to deny who we are, allow ourselves to be erased, not speak up when we see it happening, and to lose our sense of ownership. Like, oh, how painful is it to feel like it wasn't safe for me to be Buddhist as a kid, but now some white guy can wear mala beads and be Buddhist and now it's cool. You know, that's just like painful. Yeah, and it is, it is. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I yeah. just, I yeah. want, I want to help folks feel proud of where they come from and that there's something really valuable here. It can not just be ours, it can also be shared. But that there's a sense of, you know, we're going to change the starting point when we understand what American Buddhism is, what Buddhism is, how you approach it, how you experiencing it, who's a Buddhist. We're just going to shift it from over here to here. That That's kind of the feeling yes, yes. Um, that I have and what I'm trying to do. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I laugh at that point because it's, it's such, it's an, it's a story that's just told in so many ways and every day in just so many ways that it's, 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 I don't know. I, I think of it as almost like an everyday pain that, you know, that we in BIPOC folks, um, our culture is embraced by, by others and accepted when it's worn by others and not by us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that, Christina. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? I think the only thing I was thinking of it when we were talking about sort of like encountering an intact lineage or culture, spiritual tradition, and feeling like it can help you fill in the holes of your own past mm -hmm. and ancestry. Part of the way that the mechanism of how that happens is because whether it's epigenetics or something else, the storehouse unconscious, like it really just is in ourselves. Yes. We know how to do it. We just have to approach it, know it the right way. Mm. And sometimes I get accused of 
saying that Asian Americans like own certain things, <laughs> like, like hmm. approaching, I, I talk about just how it feels sometimes to train here, how people take care of one another are in relationship in such different ways are thinking about the collective. And those are not, I, I really go out of my way to say it, but I still get accused of it. But like, <laughs> these are, these aren't things that Asian people own. We didn't invent that. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's something that happened in the past couple hundred years of immigration, the proximity of the time of immigration and the degree of cultural loss and whitewashing that's happened where it's just like, you just see it a little bit more in some communities. Mm -hmm. And I'm just pointing to one instance where in mm -hmm. my life and in sharing my own experience and stories, I've felt it really strongly. And there's no doubt that it also exists in many other places. And I think even if you were to go back to being German and to being Irish and mm -hmm. how community and relationship is expressed there, that would feel more communal and connected than it does in America right now mm -hmm. and in modern sort of like our modern Western concept. I guess I just bring that up to say there's so much that we all have to bring to a modern and a future spirituality and understanding of what it means to cultivate and strengthen the spirit. Mm. I'm pointing to just shifting where we're starting because it's going to give us a leg up in getting there. Yeah. 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 Thank you. This has been Dalila Bothwell for opening Dharma access with Christina Moon sharing their Dharma experience as a BIPOC teacher. Look for Lama Karma, Yeshi Children, Sister Peace, and Reverend Lian, the other co-hosts, as they share their discussions with more teachers in the coming months. Look for new episodes on the first Tuesday of every month. In between episodes, we'll also share a meditation, mindfulness practice, chant, or another form of practice from our guests with you. Come back to check that out and to keep on listening to our BIPOC teachers. Be sure to subscribe for notifications and rate and review the podcast to help us spread the word. Check the episode notes for resources and email us at suddenleap.a, the number two, the letter Z, at gmail.com with any questions. And let's open Dharma access to all beings. <laughs>